Have you ever met one of those people who just can't be stopped? It's like they're unstoppable. Yeah, I have. Me too. What's their mystique? Nothing stops these people. Welcome to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. You're about to meet some of the most amazing people. They've accomplished their goals despite insurmountable odds. They beat adversity, physical hardship, and traumatic events and emerge triumphantly. They're people just like you and me. And they're winners. Are you unstoppable? Here's Frankie to show you how. Hello there, and welcome to Mission Unstoppable Radio. I am your host, Frankie Picasso, and I am so glad to be here with you today. Do I ever have an amazing special guest for you? You are going to meet a man today who has led an inspired life, for which I know he is extremely grateful. However, you know, we don't get anything for nothing in this world, and in return, he travels 360 days a year to countries inspiring audiences around the globe. He speaks, and he teaches, and he's a leadership expert, and he's a transformational specialist, and he has authored more than 40 books published in 29 languages, including The Breakthrough Experience, The Values Factor, The Heart of Love, Inspired Destiny, The Gratitude Effect. You're going to hear all about those and more today. He's produced over 60 CDs and DVDs. He's covered subjects such as development in relationships, wealth, education, and business. He's created over 72 different courses that are designed to assist people like you to activate leadership and empower all seven areas of their lives, financial, physical, mental, vocational, spiritual, family, and social. We're going to learn more about that and more too. My guest today, of course, is none other than Dr. John Demartini, who is considered to be one of the world's leading authorities on human behavior and personal development. And he is also the founder of the Demartini Institute. Please welcome Dr. John Demartini. Welcome, John. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you, Frankie. Do you ever like go, oh my God, I did all that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, I don't always talk about it, but sometimes the hosts do, so that's, that's fine. Of course, yeah. You know, it's it's very um, inspiring to me. I, I just finished the um, the Breakthrough Effect, and uh, I really, I really love that book a lot. And when I was speaking to your staff earlier about, you know, what can I talk to, to you know, Dr. John about? What can we talk, you know, wh- what's he doing? What's he? And I thought, let me start there because that is so empowering. But the one thing that we do do on Mission Unstoppable with all of my guests, because it is about being unstoppable in our lives, is to go back to the very beginning. And you have a very special story about your beginning. Uh, because looking at the beginning, people would not think that you ended up where you are. And I hope that we can talk about it a little bit. Is that okay with you? That's fine. Awesome. So why don't you give us a, you know, just a bit about your childhood and about what that looked like? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I was, I had some challenges in my early childhood for sure. I, I was born with my arm and leg turned in and had to wear braces Mm -hmm. uh, until I was four. And then I also had to go to speech pathologist because I couldn't pronounce and make sounds properly. And um, so that was a a bit of a challenge. And I desired to get out of those braces by the time I was four. And I just, all I wanted to do is run after that. And I guess I've been on the run ever since. Yeah, I guess so. Did you, you know, looking back, do you think that you got the right parents for you, for what you needed to do in life? Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, I'm very grateful for my parents. My my 
parents are pretty cool. I wouldn't trade them in for anybody. It sounds like uh, it. Like when you were, um, I guess, in grade school, your teacher called your parents in and told them that uh, you wouldn't probably learn to read or write or do anything and that you should go into baseball. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Who does I, that? Well, I had learning problems for sure. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really know how much of a learning problem I had till I got to first grade. And first grade, when they tried to start doing teaching, uh, it just didn't work and, and, and reading. So I started out in a normal reading class and I went to a remedial reading class and then I went, I had to wear a dunce cap. Oh so my gosh. I had to just face the window and wear a dunce cap till I was going to read. And then finally the teacher said, he's not going to do it. So he called my parents in and said, she said that, that, um, I'm afraid your son will never be able to read. He'll never be able to write. He'll never communicate because I wrote backwards. And, right. uh, and I, I won't be able to amount very much and never go very far in life. And and that was sort of real. I mean, I, I, I did have ro- learning problems at the time. Right. And I made it through the elementary school through asking questions. And what I'm sort of known for today is asking questions. So I think that had another factor. So I'm on the run and I'm asking questions. So I always say that <laughs> the things in our life actually serve us. We don't see it always at the beginning, but they did serve us. Then yeah, I ended up dropping. Oh, oh sorry. No, I, go ahead. My parents moved from Houston, Texas to Richmond, Texas, which was a low socioeconomic area. And uh, I didn't have any smart kids to get me and help me through finishing elementary because I used to ask them questions. and They'd mm-hmm. give me information and I ended up uh, dropping out. I left school, so became kind of a street kid. I left really home around 13, but I left Houston, Texas, and Richmond, Texas, and hitchhiked to California and Mexico at 14, and then on to, made it to Hawaii, panhandling money, and got enough money to fly to Hawaii. It was $86 in those days, and uh, I flew to Hawaii, and, and so I was a street kid and a surf kid. You flew to Hawaii to be a surfer, and with your parents' kind of permission, right? Like, they, well, yeah. Well, my... my, my Parents dropped me off on the freeway when I was 14. My dad and mom, they had a notarized piece of paper saying that I wasn't a runaway. I was a boy that wanted to go surfing and, and had a dream. And so they, they believed that I would somehow make it. And they thought, well, he's not going to make it in school. It's going to torture him. He can't read and write very well, but he can surf. He's got good balance. And he <laughs> he's got good balance. So, uh, you know, let him let him excel. Did he uh, have siblings? Simple. I had a sister who wanted to go with me, but they wouldn't let her go. She was uh-huh. uh, two years older than I was, but they didn't want a girl to go out on the road like that. But, um, yeah, my dad tra- taught me a lot of street smarts. And, and so he prepared me for kind of being a street kid, actually. I mean, some people think that's funny. In fact, I, I was speaking in New York one time, and there was a lady from Child Protective Service <laughs> attending my talk. And I mentioned the story. And she demanded that I she get my dad's contact details, and I so I had to give her my his cemetery plot because he passed away. <laughs> oh, jeez! She wanted to she wanted to report him. I thought that was so hilarious. That is hilarious. Oh my gosh! But just imagine, you know, if if all parents, you know, not all kids maybe can run away or go away or you know whatever. But what if what if as parents we really you know listen to our children and and what they wanted from life and and just encourage it no matter what age really you know. It's kind of interesting. Well, thought. I think I, I think you know some people question my parents at the time. I think, mm-hmm. but I'm very grateful for that. I mean, I had some challenging experiences and adventures as a teenager, without a question. Came close to death a few times, but 
you know, I wouldn't pass it up. I wouldn't I wouldn't change anything. I when I consider the going through an average life that that I wouldn't I wouldn't take that. I'd take what I did. So Yeah. I, well, you, you tell an interesting story in in the book about um, walking down the street with your surfboard, you run into like these three rednecks and you know that they're ready to, you know, to beat up on you or do something nefarious because that's what they do. And, and you had this thought, tell us what that thought was. Well, I was, I was hitchhiking from Houston, Texas to LA. And in those days, interstate 10 wasn't all complete. It was just spotted. And when I got to El Paso, you had to walk through the downtown area. There was no freeway passing by. So I had to walk through downtown El Paso with a surfboard and a headband and sandals. And it was the 60s. So (laughs) cowboys and surfers surfers didn't get along. And I, uh, as I was going through the town, there were three cowboys that lined up on the sidewalk and they saw this hippie surfer kid and they wanted to beat me up. And they lined up and they weren't going to let me pass through. And I couldn't run in the street. I couldn't go back and outrun them because I had a surfboard and a backpack. And I, I couldn't go in the store, so I didn't know what to do. And I, all of a sudden, what came to me was something that a surfer did to me one time. And I started growling and barking like a wild animal at the at the three. And believe it or not, it worked. They just moved to the side, and they thought, this guy must be on drugs or something. <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, I just barked and growled at them, and it, it, it patterned and interrupted them, and they weren't expecting it. And on the other side of that, when I came through – um, there was a bum, I thought it was a bum, and he was a guy yeah. on the street that was leaning on a lamppost, laughing his ass off, just absolutely laughing because he saw what happened. And he came up walking up to me and he put his arm on my shoulder and he said, Sonny, that's the funniest dang thing I've ever seen. You took care of them cowpokes like a pro. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? And I, and I said, no, sir, I don't drink coffee. Can I buy you a Coca-Cola? And I said, yes, sir. So he took me down to a malt shop. And, um, you know, had Coca-Cola with me. This old guy, he's about my age now. I'm 63, so he's about 62, I think. And, um, you know, he took me there and asked me about if I was going to, if I was a runaway. And I said, no, my parents dropped me off on the freeway. And uh, he didn't know what to do with that. And he said, you, you look kind of weird with the surfboard here. You're going to California. And, uh, and he said, are you finished with your Coke? And I said, yes, sir. He said, then follow me. I, I got something I want to teach you. And I was a little leery about following some guy, you know, know what's on the, but I, I somehow about this guy, he seemed like he was legit. So I followed him a couple blocks and another couple blocks and up the steps. And we went to the downtown El Paso library and there's an information booth. There was a lady there, an older lady, kind of a, uh, you know, volunteer. And, uh, he asked her if she would take, take care of my surfboard and my, my duffel bag while, while I went in the library. And so that's all I own. So I kind of left it behind the desk there, which he was. And we walked in the library, walked down steps, up some other steps. And he sat me down at a desk and um, kind of a table. And he went off to the bookshelves and he came back a minute later and he, he lined up. He put two books on the table and he said, now, young man, I, I want to teach you two things. And you got to promise me you'll never forget this. And I said, yes, sir. He said, number one, it's never judge a book by its cover because it will fool you. I'm sure you will probably think I'm some old guy on the street. But young man, I'm one of the wealthiest men in the world. I have everything that money can buy. I have planes and cars and homes and businesses. I have everything that money can buy. 
So don't ever judge a book by its cover because it will fool you. And then he took my right hand and he stuck it on top of two books, Plato and Aristotle. And uh, he set him on there and he said, now, son, you learn how to read, boy. You learn how to read. He said, because you got to, there's only two things they can never take away from you in your life. And that is your love and wisdom. So you gain the wisdom of love and the love of wisdom. I need to stop you right there because we're going to go to commercial break. Oh, my gosh. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be right back with Dr. John Demartini. That's right. Don't stop listening. Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso will continue right after these messages. Stop. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. To lose weight, we know that each day we need to burn more calories than we take in through eating, and exercise burns more calories. According to Discovery Health, a 150-pound person will burn about 60 calories while taking a one-hour nap. One hour of sitting and watching television burns about the same. But if that 150-pound person takes a one-hour brisk walk, then say goodbye to more than 250 calories. Cardio exercise like running, biking, swimming, and brisk walking are the best modes of exercise to burn the highest amount of calories and will get the endorphins flowing in your body. Those feel-good neurotransmitters boost your mood naturally. So use exercise to burn calories, lose weight, and to feel good. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. This is the TogiNet Radio Network, radio with a cutting edge. It's words you never heard. Christmas traditions vary around the world. Citizens of Finland visit the sauna on Christmas Eve and listen to the national piece of Christmas radio broadcast. Norway is the birthplace of the Yule log cake. And in Greece, many people believe in goblins that cause mischief during the 12 days of Christmas. Captain John Smith drank the first eggnog in his 1607 Jamestown settlement. Nog comes from the word grog, which refers to any drink made with rum. Since Christmas arrives in Australia in the middle of summer... Jingbangs or crowds of Aussies celebrate at the beach with beer and Skittles. This is the time each year where we have to climb up to the sky parlor or attic to fetch our Christmas lights. What's the word for decorating till we're about to collapse? Flip-floppus. It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. And we're back to Mission Unstoppable Radio. I'm your host, Frankie Picasso. My guest today is Dr. John Demartini. Love and wisdom was what his first mentor taught him. And he said, you have to learn to read Aristotle and who was the other one? Socrates? Plato. Plato. Okay. See, I wasn't listening good. Plato. Carry on with that wonderful story, if you will. Well, that gentleman, you know, gave me some really meaningful advice. And as I walked out of the place with him, he guided me and directed me onto Interstate 10 to get back to California, onto California. I didn't know who he was until many years later. And uh, can I share this story? It's a very weird story. Oh, yeah. You can can say anything on this show. (laughs) Well, I, I was in Sydney, Australia, having dinner with Robert Caswell and his wife. Mm-hmm. And Robert Caswell is a producer, movie producer, who did uh, The Doctor with William Hurt and many other movies. Mm-hmm. 
and we were having dinner and I, and, uh, he liked some of my teachings. He's been a student of mine. And he said, he said, we're here. We're normally in my, in uh, Malibu, but we're getting our house redone and the entire interior is being redone by an amazing interior designer. And I said, fabulous. And so we're at our, our Australian house temporarily. That's why we were having dinner. And um, so I didn't think much about it, but he said that. And anyway, the next morning I flew off about 1130 to back through L.A. and on to Houston, Texas. So I went through L.A., got an American airline flight and got into Houston in the evening. And I went directly to the Westin Hotel in the Galleria area of Houston, where my office is attached. And um, I wanted to eat before I went to my office. So I went to the Cheesecake Factory mm-hmm. and I went in there and sometimes they have a line in there. It's busy. And so I didn't want to wait in line. So I just went to the bar area to try to get a bowl of soup and some bread. And when I did, there was a line there and there's a pile of people there. And I went, hmm, so I'll just stand there because that'll move faster. And at a table was a lady sitting there by herself, just minding her own business. And I thought if she doesn't have anybody with her, I might see if I can join her to speed up this process. So I, um, Finally, I saw nobody come after about 10 minutes. I said, ma'am, if I was to buy you dinner, is there any way I could just use <laughs> your booth? <laughs> and, and, and she said, you don't have to buy me dinner, but you can certainly join me. And I said, lovely. And we started talking. I said, uh, you know, what's your name? And she said, Natalie. And I, I said, I'm John. And I said, what do you do, Natalie? And she says, I'm an interior designer. Oh, my gosh. And I said, you're kidding I said, where do you do interior design? And she said, she said, um, I do it all over the world. And I thought that was interesting. I said, I, you know, it's interesting. I was just in Sydney, Australia last night, and I had dinner with a gentleman named Robert Caswell, who was just telling me about an interior designer. So I had interior design in my head, and here you are being an interior designer. And she says, well, not only am I an interior designer, Robert Caswell in Malibu is my client. <laughs> That's amazing. I went, you've got to be kidding. I couldn't believe it. I was just going, I was stunned because the, the 24 hours earlier, I was in one country yeah. and talking about this lady. And so I said, well, tell me about yourself. And she started telling me about it. And then she asked me about me. And I told her, well, I travel around the world teaching and consulting and, and helping people and, and writing books. And she said, well, how did you ever get started in that? And so I told her the story yeah. about my journey. And when I got to El Paso, Texas, and I told her the story about El Paso, Texas, about gaining the wisdom of love and the love of wisdom, because what I've dedicated my life to, even the cufflinks I'm wearing right now are have love and wisdom on them, nice. still to this day. And uh, she started crying at the restaurant. Oh. And I said, ma'am, did I, did I offend you? And she goes, no, no, no. I said, why are you crying? And she said, because that man that you're talking about that gave you that is my family member. Oh, I said, wow. I said, what do you, what do you, have? how do you know? And she said, because, and then she quoted everything, things that he said. Uh-huh. She said, he taught all of us that. He said, you know, you can never take away your love and wisdom and gain the wisdom of love and the love of wisdom. And she started saying things that he said, and I just sat there in shock. And I said, well, who are you? Natalie who? She said, I'm Natalie Hughes. And I went, mm-hmm. I said, so what does that mean? I said, well, that was Howard. And I just didn't even understand it because I didn't even know he had kids or anything like that. There was yeah. 
that had kids, supposedly, although there was controversy about it. So this was somehow uh, a cousin or something. I, I, I didn't understand it. So, of course, when I did that, I had a shock. She gave me her contact details, and I communicated with her a few times after that. But then I went digging because I thought, is it remotely possible? Because he said he was one of the wealthiest men in the world. Yeah. And I thought, you know, why would an old bum on the street say that? Because he just looked like a guy laughing on the street corner. And then I went and dug, and I found out that on that day and for, for two days, he was doing an El Paso natural gas deal for a brewer he was building in Austin, Texas. Wow. And he was there that day, 1968. And I just about flipped out. I got chills up my spine. And I couldn't believe that I got guided by Howard Hughes before he went on to Las Vegas. Uh, you know, he became neurotic there. And this is right before that. And he just happened to be doing a deal there. And so when I looked at the picture, I just about, you know, I just, <laughs> you, you have no idea what that was like. I was just going, wow, what a great experience to meet a guy like that. But he's the one that taught me, you know, gain the wisdom of love and the love of wisdom. Yeah. So, so that, that's incredible. That, yeah, that was a pretty synchronous. But, you know, I, I on that same trip later on, when I got to Blythe, Arizona, right okay. before I got into the border of California, yes, uh, there was a guy, uh, the guy that picked me up was in a Volvo and he picked me up hitchhiking. And he picked up this other hitchhiker that was this hippie looking guy that was a gemstone collector out in the desert. And, and he looked like an interesting character. And so we picked him up hitchhiking. And uh, he asked if he could be taken to Idlewild, California. It's just a few miles off the main highway. And the driver said, sure. He says, I'll pay some gas. Gave him 10 bucks. And uh, and we drove to this this house in this kind of ranch uh, over this cattle garden into this beautiful ranch that has a circular driveway in it. We went inside. It says, I want to relieve my bladder and get some water. And uh, lo and behold, it was Timothy Leary's home. Oh my gosh! I went. I went and I met Timothy Leary. Are you kidding me? And Howard Hughes. And on Howard that Hughes, trip. Same hitchhiking trip to California, and uh, I won't say what I did with Timothy Leary. We did some interesting things. But yeah. Anyway, but well, um, you ha- what you have to do with Timothy Leary. <laughs> <laughs> but the point was, but I had an adventure. Yeah. And uh, I, I met some interesting people on that adventure. And I then I, I stayed in California for a while. Then I hitchhiked down to Mexico, and I was I was just a surf bum, surf kid, you know. So when did it come to you? I guess I guess when you met Paul is that when it came, when did it come to you start learning to read and and like really settle in and you know become a doctor chiropractor? Like well, when I, did that I, happen? I didn't do that. I, at fifteen, I I went off to Hawaii. Yeah. And then uh, I first. I socially climbed. I started out living underneath a, a bridge at Sunset um, Beach, Kamehameha Highway. Then I moved into Iokai Beach Park and lived under a park bench. Then I moved into a, a bathroom. Oh, my and then goodness. finally an abandoned car. And, you know, I just kept social climbing until I had a, a tent and, and a <laughs> house combination. And I was surfing every day and, and doing what surfer kids did, you know. And, yeah, and hang out. Hanging out and eating pretty, I mean, just eating off the land and stuff and eating whatever you could and just kind of doing it. And I was accumulating strychnine cyanide poisoning from some of the plants that I was eating without realizing oh. there was a plant that was grew out right on the beach that had that. And it, and it, and it almost killed me. Wow. And I, I was unconscious for three and a half days. 
And luckily, a lady found me in my tent and took me to a health food store, which then led me to go to a yoga class where Paul Bragg was speaking. And Paul did they, Bragg, sorry, I guess I'm from a Did they did they realize that you had strychnine from this plant? Like, did they know that that's yeah, what could? Yeah, yeah. That, we knew we figured that out because at first I thought it was because I was surfing 11 hours a day mm. that I had electrolyte imbalances, but it turned out that it was it was it was a toxicity because it it stopped my diaphragm. And, it, and when your diaphragm stops, Holy. it lights out of you. So and Paul it, Bragg. Wow. So, so I met Paul Bragg at, at this little Sunset Recreation uh, Waimea Bay talk he did. There's about 35 kids sitting on a wooden floor on little mats and towels. And this guy spoke. And I'm telling you, when this guy spoke, you listened. And he inspired me that night. And he, that night told us that we had a body, we had a mind, we had a soul. The body must be directed by the mind. Mind must be guided by the soul if we want to maximize our, our life. And he said that we must set goals for ourselves, our family, our community, our city, our state, our nation, our world, and beyond for 100, 120 years. And, in you know, pursue what it is that's in our heart that we want to go after. And no one ever talked to me like this. I was, you know, that's not, that wasn't the modus operandi. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was the night that for the first time in my life, I thought maybe I could overcome my learning problems. Maybe I could learn to read. Maybe I could become intelligent. And I thought intelligent people were like teachers. So I thought I want to be a teacher and I want to travel the world and I want to learn and I want to overcome my learning problems. And then I, I spent three weeks studying with Paul Bragg each morning. Uh, he had a little class each morning. Most of them were 50, 60, 70, 80 year old people, but I was a teenager there. But I um, I was 17 at the time, right before my 18th birthday, and I learned everything I could from the guy, and uh, I started meditating, I started eating differently, I started, you know, thinking differently, I stopped any forms of any things I was doing, I started eating wisely, I, I got me a little uh, a job at a, you know, making toast. <laughs> <laughs> at least you got toast. And, and, yeah. Yeah. And, uh. I, I started, my life changed. And I, when, one day during a meditation, in the meditation, it said, it's time to see your parents, time to go home. Uh-huh. The surf was coming down in the spring. And so I said, all right. So I flew, I always had enough money to fly back to, to, uh, to Hon- uh, from, from Honolulu to LA. And I hitchhiked back to Texas. And my parents, when I got back, they encouraged me to take a GED because I didn't have a high school degree. Yeah. And I guessed and passed. Wow. I just guessed. And Paul Bragg said that I need to say to myself every single day that I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom and never miss a day for the rest of my life, which I never missed. I still do it. And um, I passed that. I passed a college test, an entrance uh, test. And then I started to try to go back to college, try to go to school. And I failed. I mean, I just bonded. I thought by by guessing at those tests, I thought I was going to make it easy, uh, you know, guess all the way through. But sure. it turned out that I didn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, sometimes you can't keep guessing. We're going to go to commercial break in 15 seconds. But, you know, as guessing is guessing intuition, you know, at its best. Sometimes I think it is. Uh, but, you know, as we said at the very beginning, sometimes life is not always easy. But it's not hard. Okay, we're going to go to a break. We'll be right back with Dr. John DiMartini. Thank you. Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso will continue right after these messages. Stop. It's Martin hear about Wesley, the golden retriever puppy from Michigan that was fitted with braces? 
Before you think this is a bonafido insanity, Wesley was born with teeth that were so crooked he couldn't shut his mouth all the way. This was affecting his ability to eat properly. So his owners took him to the Harborfront Hospital for Animals and Veterinary Dental Solutions, where a doggy orthodontist prescribed him a set of braces. And now, pictures of Wesley smiling with his bright, shiny braces have been circling the Internet. With all that metal wrapped around their teeth, some would think that most dogs would become bruxomaniacs, but not Wesley. He doesn't mind the braces at all and is now able to eat his food with gusto. A bruxomaniac is someone with an uncontrollable urge to grind their teeth. It's words you never I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert Annette Hammond. A study done by the University of North Carolina found that Americans are not only eating more, we are eating more often. From 1977 to 2006, the number of daily meals and snacks increased from 5 to 7. The study also cited that we are consuming 570 more calories per day than we were in the late 1970s. The meal portions have stabilized in recent years, but the total number of calories consumed is rising. Eating five to seven small, healthy meals throughout the day, instead of eating just three large meals, keeps your metabolism revved up and keeps your hunger away. But the operative word here is small. Choose fresh fruit, vegetables, and low-calorie nutritious food for your meals, along with daily exercise. I'm Annette Hammond. To hear other fitness and weight loss tips, visit our website at AnnetteHammond.com. And we're back with Dr. John Martini. You are listening to Mission Unstoppable Radio. I'm your host, Frankie Picasso. Before we went to break, uh, <laughs> we had met Paul Bragg, and and you went back home to Texas, and you wrote your GED, and you did some courses, and then um, you found yourself, like you passed, 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 and then here you, you found yourself failing at something, and it's like, wait a minute, what happened here? Yeah, well, I, I, I did fail my first test in, in college. And I really was distraught. I mean, I, I, all I could hear is my first grade teacher hitting, talking in my head. And I went driving home and I just curled up in a fetal position and under this Bible stand my mom has, which I have in my, my office today. And uh, my mom came home from shopping and she saw me laying there and, and she said, son, what happened? What's wrong? She hadn't seen me cry in years. And I said, I blew it. I just, I guess I don't, don't have what it takes. I guess I, I won't be able to read and write and communicate and things. And she said, son, whether you become a great teacher, healer, and philosopher and travel the world like you say you want to do, whether you return to Hawaii and ride big waves like you've done, or you return to the streets and panhandle as a street kid, uh, I just want to let you know that your dad and I are going to love you no matter what. And that was exactly what I needed to hear at that yeah. moment. Yeah. I, I uh, When she said that, my hand went into a fist, and I said, I'm going to master this thing called reading and studying and learning and teaching and I'm going to do whatever it takes, travel whatever distance and pay whatever price to give my service of love. I'm not going to let any human being on the face of her stop me, not even myself. And I hugged my mom and I went to my room and I got a dictionary out and I started memorizing 30 words a day. And my mom tested me on the spelling, pronunciation and meaning of those words until my vocabulary was strong enough to pass school. And boy, I took off from there. Tell us again. Um, I am a genius. 
And, and I apply my wisdom. And That's I what apply he gave my me. wisdom. I'm a genius and I apply my wisdom. And, you know, in the breakthrough experience, after every chapter, you do these exercises and you give us some mantras and, and uh, affirmation. And I, and I just love the no matter what I have what I have done or have not done, I'm worthy of love. And that is like such a huge relief, I'm sure, for so many people. Yeah. You know, I, I had a, a boy. Uh, I was doing a program in 1990 in San Francisco and a lady attending it said, is there any way I could steal you at lunch and take you to the hospital and meet a boy who's dying of AIDS? And I said, absolutely. So we went there and we walked into this, this hospital room where he was literally emaciated and just, just, he was not doing well. And I just sat on the edge of the bed and I looked at this boy and he was looking down he barely look at you. And I, I went over to him and I said, no matter what you've done or not done, you're worthy of love. No matter what you've done or not done, you're worthy of love. And I made him repeat that. No matter what I've done or not done, I'm worthy of love. And the guy just started repeating it and started bawling because he had accumulated all this judgment inside him. Yeah, of course. All this this uh, shame and guilt because of his sexuality and because of, I guess, some of the things he's done. And he, he just cried. And he leaned over onto me. He leaned up and leaned over onto me and literally onto my on the, on the bed there. And I just kind of gave this guy a hug and he just cried and cried and cried. And he came out of that hospital. Really? Yeah. He came out of that hospital and he rallied. He did eventually die, but he rallied for six months and it was amazing. And I, I just don't know what the limitation of what love does. I don't know. You know, I think it, I, I've said in my book to count your blessings, the healing power of gratitude and mm-hmm. love, that gratitude and love certainty and presence are the four cardinal pillars of healing. Wow. I know, I know that, you know, and I'm sure you know this too, Emil Kuei, you know, in the hospitals back in like the 1800s would tell patients to say every day I'm getting better and better. And every day, you know, patients were coming out of the hospital because of these affirmations. So affirmations certainly are powerful and they work and it worked in your life because you still have wisdom and, and uh, uh, love on your cufflinks today. So look at you. I, well, because of Howard Hughes, that I, I, I never forgot it. He told me never forget it. I never forgot it. I didn't yeah. know it was Howard Hughes at the time, but I just trusted the guy because he gave me some incredible advice. And uh, so I'm wearing, I have both gold and silver ones that my students have given me because they've heard me say the story. Aww. They make these beautiful cufflings and I wear them pretty well every day. And they're, they're, they're special meaning to me. They're a reminder of that moment with, with the, uh, Howard in that that library. Well, you know, every day you help people find love. You help them transform their uh, their negativity, their hate, their you know dislike of intense dislikes of of others, and in, into transformation and and finding the love in their experiences in their life and all all of them. And you know, people go from from being the victim and and you know. Be, to 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 understanding why these things happen in their life, you are a perfect example of that. However, you know people might say, "Well, you know he's one in a million. Look what you know he had. It was during the '60s or whatever." People make excuses for everything, right? But you have you have come up with in your breakthrough experience um, is quantifiable. It's you know it's over and over and over the same system worked for thousands of people. Let, let's just talk about that a little bit because you know um, there has to be good with bad. There has to be you know love with hate, there has to be a balance. Well, I, what I did is I, I noticed back in the 70s, I noticed that many times when I would talk to people and I would sometimes project my values onto them and give them advice, uh, 
I would notice that sometimes the advice I was giving him was for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, and I noticed that um, whatever I said to them that I emphasized was usually for me. And I, and I, and I thought, well, that's kind of a reflection. And then I, I, you know, I knew about reflective awareness that, that we, the highest awareness is reflective. Mm-hmm. And so what I did is I, for, for an exercise, I went to the Oxford dictionary and I circled every behavioral trait that I could find in the dictionary. And I found 4,628 of them. And, and uh, I went through them, and then I thought of who in my life is the most extreme example of demonstrating that trait. So that could be nice, mean, kind, cruel, generous, stingy, you know, honest, dishonest, whatever the trait is, and, um, or behavioral action or inaction. And um, I'd, I'd write out the name of the most extreme example. And then I would look within myself through my, through my, from childhood to current, and I'd say, so where and when have I demonstrated and displayed this trait? And who have I demonstrated to and who's seen me do it? Mm-hmm. And I went and I identified all 4,628 traits in me. And then I realized that whatever uh, anybody said about me, it was true. It may not be true in the context that they're setting, but somewhere right. in my life, it was true. And so I created a, the beginning of the Demartini method, which we first identify the traits, actions or inactions that we admire or despise most in people. And then we go in and identify where and when do we display and demonstrate them and to who and who sees it in us until it's quantitatively and qualitatively equal to what we project as our label on them. And I've done that on 80,000 people now plus. And uh, well, actually, that's just in the breaks experience. And then all the consults is probably close to 100,000 people. Wow. And I, my my 4,000 facilitators have done it on probably another quarter of a million so we, we have done that and we've demonstrated that you, you won't see something in other people that you don't have and that whatever you resent on the outside represents something you feel shame and guilt about on the inside. And whatever you admire on the outside is representing something you feel proud of on the inside. And where we're just too proud or too humble to admit what we see in others inside us. And so when we actually wake up and have reflective awareness where the seer, the seeing, and the seeing are the same, we become aware of that and it helps us transcend some of the judgment we have, it helps right. us appreciate and love ourselves and other people more effectively. Okay, I have to ask you, this is a personal question. I have to ask it because I went through the whole book, I read it, and I, I got it, and, you know, um, I had a motorcycle act, great pain now, very, like, 15 years later, it's worse than it used to be, and I go, okay, I understand why the accident happened. I, I, I get that. I get all the lessons I got from it, but... And, it, you know, why does it continue? Like, when is it, when when does it end? Like, the lesson end? <laughs> okay, I get it. Lesson can be over now. How do we get it to end? Well, pain is a private sensation of hurt that John Bonica, leading specialist in pain over the last few decades, have stated. And it's, there's two types. There's neuro, neurological pain and glial pain. And neurological pain is usually that means that there's some sort of an ischemic or injury to a cell somehow. Mm-hmm. An inflammatory response is active. And that's an acute pain. And that's usually last, you know, days, sometimes weeks. And then there's chronic glial pain. And, and normal nerve receptors and nerve transmitters being inhibited for pain, like procaine and, you know, yeah. these types of things. They don't work on glial pain. They work on, on neural pain. And glial pain, they found out, is 
induced by unconscious motives. And, and so we, we have to go and dig and find the unconscious motives because now I'll give you an example. I, I had a lady in the uh, hotel in Ireland, Dublin, Ireland, mm-hmm. and uh, Merriam Hotel. And she had 57 years of pain, she claimed. Wow. 57 years. So she was up in her up in age and she was 57 years of chronic pain. And so I sat her down right there in the lobby, private area. And I said, so I'm going to ask you a very simple question. What is the benefit you're getting out of it? Mm-hmm. And she says, there's no benefit to pain. I said, no, there is. And there's a book it's called uh, by Milton Ward called the brilliant function of pain that I made every patient read before okay. I would accept I'm it as a read patient. That. And the brilliant what, function of pain, brilliant function of pain by Milton Ward. And what it was, a simple, small book, and it outlined people who did not have the power or ability to feel pain and what their life was like without the ability to have pain. And they would run into things, bump into things, injure themselves. They couldn't feel pain. And um, it's a, I made every patient do it so they would appreciate the purpose of pain. Right. Because pain and pleasure are feedback mechanisms to guide us into a balanced perspective on life. And so anyway, that's a tight side tangent, but I made this, I made this lady answer this question and as she was starting to answer the question. She came to a realization and burst into tears. And she finally realized that her sister was very intelligent, highly active in sports and excel and excelled in almost everything, socially, a- academic sports. She was popular and she was attractive. And so she got prom queen, this kind of stuff. She was excelling and nothing she could do to compete with her sister except have pain. Oh, wow. That was the only way she could get competition as far as attention from the parents and from people. So the pleasure came from, from the attention. So the pleasure, the pleasure she was getting, because no one, every human being has a set of priorities, a set of values in their life. Right. And every decision they make is a result of what they believe will give them the greatest advantage or a disadvantage, greatest reward of a risk, greatest benefit or drawback. They won't continue to do something unless there's an unconscious motive. So we uncovered that in the lady right there, and we found 17 major tear-jerking unconscious motives that were sitting there. And oh, my God. we got to go to commercial, John. we got to go to commercial. But we will be right back with Dr. John Martini. Don't you want to hear the rest? I do. 17. Wow. Be right back. Don't go anywhere. That's right. Don't stop listening. Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso will continue right after these messages. Stop. Do you ever wonder if you're the only woman who runs errands in her yoga pants so it will look like she went to the gym? Or how about the only mom who feeds her kids raw cookie dough? Or are you the only one who cooks her family cold cereal for dinner? Do you need more laughter and less loudness? More self-love and less self-loathing? More joy and less judgment? You're not alone. Come to The Living Room, a place where we get comfy, candid, and confident together. Come seeking sanctuary and leave feeling renewed. We're saving a seat for you. Give yourself some living room today. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. I am not an advocate of eating fast food. 
With a little planning and self-control, you can skip the fast food restaurants and keep to your low-calorie, healthy eating. But I also know that the holidays are hectic, and many more Americans opt to eat fast food because of time crunches. If that's you, be mindful of what you are ordering. First, choose water instead of soda. That one decision can drastically cut the calories. Second, be aware of what you are eating. Just because it's a salad doesn't mean it's healthy or low-calorie. Many have fried chicken, bacon, or are loaded with cheese. Some fast food restaurants offer healthy choices like yogurt, oatmeal, veggie subs, and turkey wraps. Look for meals under 350 calories. Take time to study the menu and make good choices. For the Fitness Minute, I'm Annette Hammond. And we're back with Dr. John Demartini. If you've just tuned in, it's Mission Unstoppable Radio. We, he was telling a fascinating story about this woman who is in pain for 57 years, and they uncovered 17 reasons and one major one. Let's let's carry on with that. That's fascinating. Well, we we. We uncovered tremendous amount of motives that she had because it became a way of life. Mm-hmm. This is what is called glial, chronic glial pain. And uh, when we got some these 17 different issues, all were tear-jerking issues. We actually came up with more than 17, but 17 were tear-jerkers, and those are the ones I'm looking for. And she had a motive, and she looked at me, and she said, is it remotely possible that I've done this to myself? And I said, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Well, not only did when she cried and had these deep realizations, these real, these are all deep unconscious realizations. Mm-hmm. When we finished, she didn't have pain. Wow. And yeah. she cried Amazing. now out of a gratitude. Yeah. She just, she just had a realization that she had the power. See, pain, th- th- there's nociception, which is pain, and it's a small C fibers. They go from the skin and various joint capsules and various parts of the body up into uh, through the thalamus. So it's a thalamic uh, response, not a cortical response. And the cortex can overrule the thalamus. And there's mechanoreceptors that have larger diamond neurons that can um, go and beat out the C fibers in conduction. And they can literally, that's why if you bruise yourself, you'll rub your leg and you'll scratch it really quick. Mm-hmm. because those stimulate mechanoreceptors to shut down the pain and release endorphins. And so what she was doing without even realizing it was these unconscious mechanisms to try to reduce her pain, which were were actually partly effective, but she was dwelling on the pain and getting sympathy for the pain and getting attention from pain. And that was a that was her modus operandi. You've met people like that, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, my mother. Their story. They, they, they run their story as victims of history instead of masters yeah. of destiny. And, and, and she was doing that until she met me. And that was a turning point. And I, I'm very grateful that I got to meet her because I saw that was a pretty extreme example. Oh, my example. gosh, that is amazing. I mean, you know, and, and I look at my own mother who, who was like that, a martyr in her pain. And I'm never going to be like that. And so I kept saying, I can't be that. That can't be my story. There's, I can't find this, you know, unconditional or, or underlying automatic commitment to pain because I don't want that to be my story. But let's, let's just go to gratitude because I think it's really important. You, you're, you know, 
you talk about gratitude in your book and about what real gratitude is when you're when you're really truly grateful for for what you have in your life. Um, let's just talk about your your definition of it for a moment, if we can. Well, there's two types of gratitude. Uh, in, in the way the human brain and mind is working, is that we have a set of priorities, a set of values, things that are most important to least important in our life that we live by. And whenever we're living aligned and congruent with what we value most, the blood glucose and oxygen goes up into the executive center, the medial prefrontal cortex, the forebrain, Mm -hmm. where we have inspired vision, foresight, strategic planning, executing plans, and self-governance. We have mastery there. And in there, we have a tremendous capacity to overrule pain sensations. But when we're doing things low on our values, primarily because we're comparing ourselves to others minimizing ourselves to others that we look up to and then injecting some of their values and attempting to be somebody we're not envying them and imitating them and Mm -hmm. living in their shadows instead of standing on their shoulders. We go into our amygdala area of the brain, which is more inner region of the brain. And there we try to avoid pain and seek pleasure, avoid predator, seek prey, Mm -hmm. avoid, you know, challenge and seek support, avoid shame and seek uh, pride And we strive for a one-sided world. And as the Buddha says, the desire for that which is unavailable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. And so we are striving for a futile attempt to get a one-sided life, whereas the executive center embraces objectively both sides. So when we are pursuing both sides of life and we set goals that are balanced, we can achieve them and have self-worth. And the endorphins and encephalons and all the chemical compounds that help us be resilient come online. But the second we're not, and we're living by lower values because we're subordinating and living in the shadows of people, we automatically go into the areas that induce uh, the searching for dopamine. And and, and and as long as we're searching for a one-sided world, the other side smacks us very hardly. And we have distress and we end up having a high vulnerability because we're trying to avoid pain. We have a high vulnerability and sensation of pain when we're challenged. And so this is the area that, that uh, accentuates uh, the response from glial pain. So uh, just, just to understand you know, what I was reading in your book, to paraphrase, when you're living, living in the past, living in the, pre- in, in the future, uh, not so great. But when we are present, then everything is balanced and, and good. Well, when, when a perfectly balanced mind opens the heart with gratitude mm-hmm. and when the heart opens out comes love and that window washes the mind and inspires the mind and brings enthusiasm the body and certainty and presence and when we're not and we're searching for a one-sided world we're searching for a gratitude when it supports us and we're ungrateful when things challenge us yeah. when we're living by our highest value we embrace support and challenge equally in the pursuit of a purpose and meaning as victor franco would say and that is true grace Mm-hmm. So there's a human gratitude, thank you, thank you, thank you, and a human ingratitude, screw you, screw you, screw you. And then there's true grace where we can see the hidden order in our apparent chaos and we embrace the two sides of life equally, simultaneously. And we see the balance of life inherent in the event that we first initially judged imbalanced and divided our mind into conscious and unconscious components. If you want to live the life that you were meant to live. If you want to live with deep love and gratitude for the kind of life that you really want, not maybe the one you're living, you must seek out Dr. John Demartini. You must read his books and, and just follow all of his examples and, and 
everything that he tells you to do because you can be living and doing exactly what you want and not worrying about how it's going to happen or the money or anything like that. It takes work. Everything takes work, but you can be doing it. And I think that's pretty exciting news because well, everybody can have what they want. If you don't fill your day with high priority actions that inspire you, it is designed to fill up with low priority distractions. It doesn't. Right. If you don't fill your day with challenges that inspire you by solving people's problems and helping people, caring, your life is going to fill up with challenges that don't. And if you don't fill your day with things that are productive and meaningful and something that produces an income, you're not going to live an inspired life because you won't have the income to delegate lower priority things that trap you in mediocrity. So it's essential that you prioritize your life according to what you really value, not what you fantasize, but what you really value. Because there's something that's really high in your values. You will embrace pain and pleasure in the pursuit of it. You know, one thing that I know that everybody must ask you, because you talk about it a lot, is what's my purpose? We're all, we're all here with a divine purpose to do something. And everybody wants to know what their purpose because if they're living in their purpose, they're going to be happy. So which of, you know, your tapes, your books your presentations, whatever, would people who are really looking for their purpose, what would be the best place to start for them? Well, I think the, uh, my more recent book, the values factor book. Okay. Be very helpful in that arena. I also have purpose life striving force, which is a CD that's out that I've done, but, but here's what I found your, your highest value. So I, I created a value determination process. Mm-hmm. which uh, everybody who may be listening, if they would like to take take a 30 minutes of their time to go through it, then go on my website, drdmartini.com, go on the menu, hit go, and you'll see a value, determine, determine your values. And it's a 30-minute process that asks 13 questions. You fill it in. You it's, it's electronically done. It's private. No one will ever see it except you. And you can do it again and do it in, over a period of time to confirm it. And it will help you determine what you value most. And whatever the highest value is, the ancient Greeks called that the telos, the end in mind. Napoleon Hill called it the chief aim. Mm-hmm. But that highest value is the purpose. Mm-hmm. The, the, the study of that telos, teleology, is the study of meaning and purpose. That's the most meaningful, the most inspiring, most fulfilling, most purposeful thing we can do. And our purpose is inherently in our life. Our, our life demonstrates our values. And I had a lady in London. I'm here in London right now. And I, I was I had with a lady about four years ago in London in the Breakthrough Experience program that I was doing. And she said, Dr. DiMartini, I don't know what my purpose is. And I said, you know, look right now. I, I, I confronted her on the spot. I said, right now, what do you do every day that you never have to be reminded to do, that you can't wait to get up in the morning and do, that you're inspired to do, that you love doing? And she looked at me and she goes, I love spending time with my kids. I love being with my kids. I love my kids. I said, does anybody have to remind you to do that? No. Is that something you love doing? Yes. Is that what you're inspired by, watching them grow and taking care of them? Yes. I said, ma'am, the only reason why you don't know what your purpose is is because you're comparing your life, which is demonstrating that your life is dedicated to your children. Mm -hmm. You're comparing your life to other people that have different values, and you're expecting yourself to be somebody you're not. And And you're injecting the values of other people that you're admiring and it's clouding the clarity of what you're called to do because you you want to raise beautiful children. And I said to Rose Kennedy, the, the founder of the Kennedy family, uh, her mission statement, which I have a copy of, was that I want to dedicate my life to raising a family of world leaders. 
I said, you may be here to raise a magnificent family and do something extraordinary. She just burst into tears. She said, that's all I've ever wanted to do. I just want to raise a beautiful family. And I said, well, then give yourself permission to do that and quit comparing yourself to people. Because you compare yourself to other people and you're a, you're like a fish comparing yourself to a cat and you'll think you you, you beat yourself up because you can't climb a tree or you're a cat comparing yourself to a fish because you can't swim. But if you compare yourself to your own dreams and your own actions and your own values, you'll honor yourself and you'll be inspired by a mission and you'll be called into action. This lady changed and gave herself permission to be herself instead of comparing herself to other people. And Ralph Waldo Emerson said, envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. We're yeah. not here to imitate anybody or try to be somebody we're not. The magnificence of who you are is far greater than any fantasies we'll impose on ourselves that we're supposed to be somebody else. Wow. Now, did I read that you that that you in you read something like I don't know how many how many fifty six thousand books or something like crazy like that? No, is that no, true? no, no. Probably way no, over I, that now. No, it's not that. I I've read about thirty thousand books and thirty thousand about a one hundred books from a boy who was told he'd never be able to read. Well, how, I, how inspiring is that? We got one uh, minute to the end of the show. Thought, I'm going to give you the floor. The very thing that, that they said I would never do is what I've ended up doing. Mm-hmm. They said I'd never read. I've, I've been an enormous reader. Never write. I've done a lot of writing. Said I'd never mount a thing. I'm quite well off, well off now. Of course. I, I, I said I'd never communicate. I've reached a lot of people you and did. never uh, go very far. I've traveled 18 million miles on planes. So... I am so grateful to have you here today. We got 30 seconds less than that. So I do want to thank you so very much for coming on the show today. And I'm so grateful that you took a moment out of your time. You're in London hotel room talking to us. And and I know everybody listening appreciates that so very much. Thank you, Dr. John Demartini. Thank you. Isn't that fantastic? Come back next week for another Mission Unstoppable. See you Thursday for Frankie Sense and more. When the chips were down, they didn't stop. Stories of people who, when the odds were against them, turned defeat into victory. You've been listening to Mission Unstoppable with Coach Frankie Picasso. See you next time, and always remember... Don't, 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 don't stop.